This is They Create Worlds, episode 104, A Holistic View of E.T. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We'd like to wish you all a wonderful holiday season. And as you sit down, relax, enjoy your eggnog, and pull out your wonderful game consoles, we hope that you look forward to enjoying everyone's favorite video game, E.T. The game that took Atari to the next level. It was already a big company as the fall of 1982 dawned, but now that it had the biggest entertainment license of all time, it would release a glorious game, a triumphant game, a brilliant game that would take them to a whole new level of unrivaled dominance within the video game industry. And since this is not a steampunk universe, that totally didn't happen. Yeah, not really. So, of course, we've talked about E.T. before. How can you not when we did a four-part blowout on Atari and a three-part blowout on the crash? Yada, 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 yada. And we talked about it a lot. We've talked about how it was a rushed job. They only had maybe a few months to really code the thing. Some would even argue even a few weeks because you had to go into cartridge production. You had the pressures of studios and Steven Spielberg going, We want this to be out for Christmas. We want this tie-in. We want all this stuff to work. (laughs) And then people go, well, um, 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 thing. The fact that they even got a game out at all in the time frame they had is frankly astonishing. Absolutely it is. Uh, So, of course, we've talked about all that before. And a little bit of this episode will be repeat because we can't talk about it without bringing some of that stuff up again. But... I did want to drill down on a little more, talk a little more in depth about the game, talk a little more in depth about the creation of the game and the pressures and the politics, and then discuss a little bit why it is considered the way it is. I mean, we mentioned that briefly, of course, in our Crash and our Atari episode that no, it didn't really cause the crash single-handedly and no, it didn't really bring Atari down single-handedly. But we didn't really discuss in depth what it actually meant for the video game industry and what it actually meant, especially for Atari, and why it makes sense that it is so big in everyone's mind and preys on everyone's mind so much, even if it's a little overblown. It's both correct and incorrect to say that it caused the downfall of Atari. Because it didn't. I mean, logically speaking, we talked about all the other issues that Atari was having at that time. But at the same time, the problems that it had were still very important to that downfall. And we shouldn't just say, well, it didn't single-handedly cause the crash and leave it at that. Because it still created very real problems for the company that need to be addressed. And we also need to kind of contextualize where it fit within what was going on with the E.T. brand as a whole. And why, in some ways, the game was inevitably going to be a disappointment and inevitably going to fail no matter how much time they had had to make it or what type of gameplay they had decided to put with it. And those wider issues we haven't really talked about in any episode. 
So there'll be some repeat here if you're a regular listener. At this point, when you've done over 100 episodes, it's hard not to. But we really are going to get into some new areas as well. And we want to do a nice, big, in-depth look at this singular game, which still captures the imagination all of these decades later, just because of what it represented for Atari specifically and the video game industry in general. I recall you mentioning a few times that various video game executives you interviewed mention Atari and E.T. specifically, and it's almost like the mystique of E.T. has taken on a... Oh, yeah. A life of its own. A life of its own. Exactly. Yeah. Its own mythology completely unto itself that has sort of taken away from the facts and the reality of the situation. And it's its own legend. Absolutely. And that is an interesting thing to point out, of course, too. And just to, to state it again, for my own research, I have interviewed both CEOs of Atari, Ray Kassar and then James Morgan, who replaced him. I interviewed the president of the Consumer Products Group, Perry Odak. I interviewed the president of Atari Consumer and the president of Atari International, Michael Moon and Tony Bruhl. I interviewed the CFO of Atari, Dennis Groth. Moving outside of Atari, I interviewed the president and CEO of Parker Brothers, Ranny Barton. The head of the Parker Brothers console video game division, Richard Stearns. Uh, the head of Mattel Electronics, Joshua Denham. The CEO of Imagic, Bill Grubb. The CEO of Activision, Jim Levy. The CEO of Coleco, Arnold Greenberg. I have interviewed many of the top-level executives in the video game industry in this time period. Invariably, they bring up E.T. before I do. They mention E.T. before I can even ask about it. People inside Atari, people outside Atari. As soon as they start talking about the dark days, they bring up E.T. unprompted. And that's really fascinating to think of. The legend has taken over everyone's mindset in such a way that it has a life of its own. It's almost like the facts and the reality of the situation can't really get a foothold. And hopefully through the course of this episode, we can help shape the narrative there in order to show that, yeah, the legend has this thing going on to it. But here's really what the documentation says. Here's really what happened Here's some of the political, social, and uh, right. other pressures that have come to fruition in order to cause this thing to happen. Exactly. But also at the same time, why it is also perfectly understandable and perfectly legitimate that this game looms large in people's minds. Because just because it has become larger than life, bigger than reality, doesn't mean that there still isn't a real ugly reality there that needs to be explored. It is certainly an interesting dichotomy. So to start off, we had a wonderful movie, E.T., that many a young children has enjoyed. Sure, and just to put that into some context as well, there was a period of time in the late 70s and the early 1980s when you had the true beginning of what we would call summer blockbuster filmmaking, where new records were being set fairly rapidly for box office in movies. Jaws, in 1975, became the first movie ever to break $100 million in the box office. Star Wars eclipsed Jaws. E.T. then eclipsed Star Wars. And E.T. remained the global box office champion. Total amount of money made. All the way until 1993, when Jurassic Park, another Steven Spielberg movie, defeated it in global box office. Jurassic Park did not defeat it domestically in the U.S. box office. 
in the U.S., E.T. held on even a few more years until the re-release of the Star Wars movies pushed Star Wars back in front of it. And then, of course, Titanic came along and, you know, that's a whole another big thing. It's not just that E.T. was a successful children's movie, which, of course, it was. E.T. was the highest grossing movie of all time and remained that way for a decade. It was number one at the box office for six weeks in a row when it first came out in the summer of 1982. After that, it remained the number one or number two movie. It it didn't have as long a consecutive run at number one. But after that, it was number one or number two all the way until October. The number one or number two movie in the country. It was released in June. It's still sometimes, some weeks, number one in October. Today, it just doesn't work that way. You have so many big tentpole releases that if a movie stays four weeks at the top, it's considered to be astounding. (laughs) Right. And then it returned. It had a brief re-release during the holidays in December, and it returned one more time to the number one spot. So, I mean, this was a phenomenon like nothing anyone had seen before. It was bigger than Star Wars. Hard to imagine that. Absolutely. It just, it hit a nerve, I guess. I mean, it is a great movie. I just guess the themes of friendship and and growing up and finding yourself and, you know, that kind of stuff still grabs us. I mean, it's, E.T. is one of the classic kind of 80s kid-led kind of movie. I mean, there were a few others that were very influential as well, like The Goonies. But I mean, we still see a little bit of E.T. in something like Stranger Things which is, you know, so popular today. There's probably a little more Goonies and Stand By Me in Stranger Things than there is E.T., but, I mean, it's, it's all kind of part of that mix, you know? Yeah, certainly the same era and same sort of philosophy going on then. Right. So, I mean, it was huge, and it remains huge. And this was Steven Spielberg at the height of his game. He'd done Jaws in 75, then he'd done Close Encounters in 78, which did okay, not brilliant, but pretty decent. Then he had a period there where he did a couple of things that didn't work too well, but then he did Indiana Jones, and Indiana Jones was so huge. And then after Indiana Jones, he does E.T. So this is a filmmaker at the height of his powers, dominating both the U.S. and the global film industry. So there was no doubt that there was going to be a video game. I mean, there was tons of merchandising. There was all sorts of other merchandising being done. Jack Friedman, who later founded LGN Toys, and then after that, THQ and Jack Specific, he basically made his stones doing E.T. merchandise. He wasn't doing toys quite yet. This is before he founded LGN, but like E.T. socks, E.T. underwear or whatever. I mean, E.T. the toilet paper. Yeah, yeah, merchandising, but he got some of those ancillary kind of products, and that's how he made all of his money that allowed him to become a big player in toys with LJN and uh, THQ and Jack Specific. So, I mean, this was a defining moment in movie licensing because this was just a few years after Star Wars had completely redefined how you market tie-in product for a movie. So E.T. was riding the same kind of wave. That's what you have to remember. I mean, E.T. was huge. If you think about it today, you think, oh, that's a nice movie. It's a sweet movie. It's a well-done movie. And, And all of those things are true, but it was huge. The way that Marvel is going crazy now with all the merchandising, 
take that and apply it to E.T. That's how it was back in the 80s. Absolutely. Because remember, you know, there's inflation and everything. So you can give a box office figure and the box office figure is pretty impressive on its own. It made $359 million in North America on its initial release. And that went north of $400 million after, you know, subsequent re-releases. That's a big figure even today, though it's not special. But here's the big one. Box Office Mojo estimates, and that's one of the major tracking uh, services today, estimates that the film sold 120 million tickets in the U.S. in its initial theatrical run. 120 million. That is a lot of tickets. For a frame of reference, the population of the United States in 1982 was 231.7 million people. Now, obviously, a lot of people were watching the movie over and over again. So, you know, you have to take that number for what you will, but... 30 to 40% of the country saw this movie in On its initial theatrical release. Yeah, because you have to remember, too, this is just a year or two before the video cassette boom really took off. I mean, you had VCRs already, but it wasn't until the VHS standard really started driving down prices in kind of the 1984 period that home video really got big. So this was one of the last really big tentpole releases that came out before home video was big. And obviously it came out on home video too. But what I mean is part of the reason why it could sell so many tickets in relation to something today is this was kind of at the tail end of the period when if you wanted to see a movie... You had to go see it in the theater or, you know, hope to catch it on the movie of the week sometime. That's part of the reason why some of these movies would get such massive ticket sales back then is that was how you saw the movie. You didn't wait for the uh, pay-per-view release or the digital streaming release or the DVD release. You saw it in the theater. And if you liked it, you saw it a few more times because you knew that this was your shot. All right. So I think we got the context of this is really a big movie. How do we go from, <laughs> this is a big movie, we got a lot of merchandising going on, we talked about this a little bit before, but just to bring everyone up to speed, how did they sort of go to Atari or Atari to them and go, hey, let's make that their video game? Right. So I, I actually want to go into a little more detail on this than we did before, because after all, we're devoting a whole episode to this, so why not? First thing you have to understand is that Steven Spielberg was and always has been a gamer. Steven Spielberg is huge into video games. He was introduced to video games while he was making Jaws. There was a Pong unit on the boardwalk. This is 74 they were probably shooting. I don't know if they shot in 74 or 75. Movie came out in 75. They probably shot in 74. So it was a couple of years after Pong had come out, but Pong was still not that old. And so he discovered Pong on the boardwalk while he was making Jaws, and he loved that, and he's been into video games ever since. I mean, he's legitimately interested and fervent about video games. So, of course, he knew who Atari was, and his first impulse was to give those video game rights to Atari, because... Atari's the big kid on the ground. uh, And, you know, because a video game was going to happen. Now, of course, he doesn't have that kind of control over the movie. The movie was made by MCA Universal, where Sid Sheinberg had been his mentor ever since his TV movie days. He had a very close relationship with Sid Sheinberg and a very close relationship with Universal. And of course, Universal, MCA Universal, is going to get that movie to where they can get the biggest deal. 
it's great for Spielberg to say it would be nice if Atari did it, but that doesn't mean they're going to get it. Now, just to give you an idea of how video game licensing worked at this time, there had been very little licensing of entertainment properties as of yet for home games. By this time, there had been a lot of licensing of hit arcade titles, but there had been very few licenses of successful entertainment properties and other mediums. But the way the deals tended to work in this time period, according to some of the people that were making the deals at the time, is there were no advances. There were no upfront payments. The way they licensed is that there was a royalty on the sale of each game. And that royalty was usually about 3% of sales. You have to remember at this time, there are very few video game companies. So there's very little competition for this. Plus, you have the same situation that you often get and that we've talked about in other episodes where when you have a brand new medium, people aren't sure really what it's worth and they tend to lowball and then regret it later. We talked about this just an episode or two ago in the context of Netflix and streaming and how everyone was giving away those rights for free. So 3% uh, royalty on sales, no advance, seems like pretty paltry terms, but it largely had to do with the lack of competition, and the lack of anyone kind of knowing how big this thing could become. Well, by 1982, the situation is a little different because by 1982, you have a lot of competition, not just in terms of more console companies like Coleco getting in, but also the third parties getting involved. You also have a bigger sense or a better sense of how the video game industry is becoming this really huge thing because by 1981 the industry has grown to be a pretty significant form of, really at this time, children's entertainment, a really big part of the toy industry. So you have rates going up a little bit. Sid Sheinberg and Lou Wasserman at MCA Universal were known as very good and very ruthless dealmakers. So they were talking to everybody, and they were actually talking uh, very closely with Coleco about doing some kind of license. Coleco at this time is just getting ready to launch their ColecoVision system. And their entire strategy with that ColecoVision system was license, 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 both hit arcade games and hit entertainment properties elsewhere. Coleco was really driving hard to get a lot of these licenses. So they actually had very serious talks with Coleco about doing this thing. And they knew they had something big on their hands, so they weren't going to settle for just the first deal that came their way. So, of course, Atari's interested. Of course, Atari's looking. And around the same time, as a matter of fact, Atari had completed a deal for Raiders of the Lost Ark, another Spielberg movie. Now, Raiders of the Lost Ark was done by Paramount. It wasn't done by MCA. So even though Spielberg is the director of both, it's a different negotiation. You're not getting both of those properties as a package deal. One's Lucasfilm and Paramount. The other is MCA Universal. So Skip Paul, the legal counsel at Atari, who often was negotiating these deals, comes to MCA Universal and offers $1 million in advance. Atari had never offered an advance before. It was always royalties. $1 million in advance and 7% royalties. Then Skip Paul's own words, not to me, but he's given interviews about this and other sources, He was laughed out of the room. Now, that was a pretty darn good deal by the standards of the time. No advance, 3%, 1,000,000, 7%. That's a pretty good deal. 
Yeah, and it's just that you have two different groups on different wavelengths. You have the video game industry right. who has their lower level of our standard practice is 3%. Nothing in advance. We're all good. We do that. I see this as being really valuable, so I'm going to double everything and give them money up front. That's going to be fantastic mm-hmm. for these people. They're going to be wonderful. It's sort of like in a previous episode where Elite went to the Japanese companies. Uh, right, right, exactly. Capcom. When uh, Elite went to Capcom and said, hey, I'm going to give you our best deal up front here. All the other ones right. aren't going to even care about you at all. So you are going to really want to go to me because here's my fantastic deal that I'm giving you. The fact that they are being laughed out of the room, figuratively speaking, or potentially literally speaking, right? that's insulting to anyone. If they <laughs> go, I'm doing this uh, fantastic deal that I honestly am because I'm doing above industry standards here, and you think it's ridiculous. <laughs> Conversely, on the other side, they go, well, I'm a big movie producer. We do a lot of this kind of tie-in stuff. When we go to toys, we deal with what I'm used to doing with this kind of thing, that kind of thing. As far as right. my kind of royalties and other kind of advancements and incentives I get. And then this piddling video game company comes to me and just gives me a million dollars and 6%. I'm used to getting a trip to Cancun, 20% royalties, and uh, maybe $10 million. I don't know. I don't know the context there. But it's sort of like a completely different wavelength. Right. And just a property that is much bigger than any property that's been negotiated at this point. I mean, Space Invaders and Pac-Man were big names in the arcade, and the arcade was doing great business in this time period. But, you know, E.T. is E.T. At the same time this is going on, you have another force moving in the background. Atari, as our listeners by now should know, is a subsidiary of Warner Communications. Another subsidiary of Warner Communications is Warner Brothers Movie Studio. Steven Spielberg is the hottest director in town at this point. Huge director. But he has this pretty much lockstep relationship with Sid Sheinberg, his mentor, and MCA Universal. You know, Indiana Jones was done with Paramount. It's not like he'd never done a movie with somebody else. But his first go-to place for a project was MCA Universal because of that relationship. Well, Steve Ross, the chairman of Warner, the movie studio was his baby. Yeah, he had all the other stuff. But, you know, he almost never came to Atari, for instance. Yeah, he wasn't directly responsible for running it or even overseeing it from the Warner end. That just wasn't the sexy for him. The sexy for him was the movie stars. The sexy for him was the movie business. And Steven Spielberg is the hottest name in movies. Steve Ross wants to not drive a wedge in the sense that he's trying to destroy the relationship between Scheinberg and Spielberg necessarily, but he wants to drive a wedge into that relationship and crack open a place for Warner to make some movies with Spielberg. So during the same period of time, Steve Ross is starting a full court press to woo Spielberg to Warner Brothers. Going on, you know, inviting him over for parties and for trips and spending lots of time talking to him and trying to take on some of that same mentor role that Sid Sheinberg has already got with him and just put on the full court press. So he sees an opportunity here. Steve Ross never interfered with the Atari business. We talked about this before. During this time period, a little later it's different, but he never 
got involved in that business. But here he saw an opportunity to really lure Steven Spielberg to his studio and do so by giving him a fantastic deal on E.T., by giving him lots of money for E.T. and promising he'd make lots more money off of E.T. by going with Atari and going with Warner. So he offers the most ridiculous deal for the game. Different people have said different things about what exactly the dollar figure was, but I'm going to go with Skip Paul's version of it. It could be off slightly, but if it's off, it's only off by the magnitude of a couple million, and the number's so big that what's a couple million between friends? But he offered 23 million. It was a personal deal. Steve Ross had invited Spielberg out to one of his places in East Hampton, and they just negotiated directly. They did the deal right there. I mean, presumably, Stephen had to call up Scheinberg and those people and, you know, but basically it was a personal negotiation between the two Steves here and $23 million guaranteed. The whole thing wasn't up front, but it was guaranteed that the royalty would be at least $23 million. And presumably, if it went on to sell a bajillion plus copies, there'd be even more royalty because there was going to be royalties on the product. But no matter how well the game sold, guaranteed royalty of $23 million. Which is a pretty astronomical number for the 1980s. That's nuts. That's absolutely nuts for a video game. But here's the thing. Steve Ross wasn't buying a video game. Steve Ross didn't care about video games. He was buying Steven Spielberg. That's what we have to remember. He was buying Steven Spielberg. And you know what? After that time, Spielberg ended up doing some movies with Warner Brothers. Obviously, it worked on some level. Now, as we'll see, it was still the kind of disaster that maybe Ross shouldn't have been getting involved in, but... Ross didn't care that he was overpaying for a video game because he wasn't buying a video game. But of course, because he wasn't interested in the video game business and because he didn't know anything about the video game business and because he didn't, quite frankly, care about the video game business, he cared about the money it was making him. I mean, Atari was the tail wagging the dog during this period in terms of Warner's earnings and operating profit. But he didn't care about the nuts and bolts of it. So because he didn't care about the nuts and bolts of it, Even though they did this deal in July, very famously, as we know, he guaranteed Spielberg that the game would be out at Christmas. And it's very obvious why he would want to guarantee that, because that's when the game is going to make boatloads of money, because it's the Christmas of the year it was released. You know, you can't be sure that if you put it out in 1983, the people are still going to care come Christmas 1983. That was seen as the way, again, of maximizing Spielberg's profit potential which Ross saw was important to part of his full-court press to woo Spielberg to Warner Brothers. This isn't even about video games. Video games just kind of got caught in the middle. Caught in the crossfire. He has no idea about the development cost, (laughs) the run-up cost, the cartridge duplication time, lead-up programming, debugging, artist, all sorts of things. In his mind, he's like, hey, it's July. We got a few months. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we can slap together a toy and put it out to the market and all these other things. Why can't yeah. we do that with a video game? Yeah. So Ross calls Ray Kassar, who, of course, is the CEO of Atari, and is like, I've bought E.T. for $23 million. And Ray Kassar is like, we have never 
guaranteed money before to anybody, let alone that amount of money. And Ross is like, well, I have. I mean, what's Regis R going to say? Ross is his boss. I mean, he, he can't order him to go undo the deal. And he was like, oh, and by the way, it has to be out by Christmas. And he's like, the lead time, once a game is designed, you know, the, the testing phase, the manufacturing phase, everything, the lead time is like four months. That means we have like a month, four to five weeks to actually make this game. It's the same kind of thing as anyone has seen or read The Martian and one of the scenes in that where they have to rush a satellite to go up into space in order to send supplies. They rush that entire mm-hmm. process and that leads to a disaster. Right. It's that kind of mentality. How can I get this thing out the door in something resembling a completely viable product, but not necessarily everything done right and not everything's checked in order to make sure it's done right? And they knew they couldn't skimp on that. They made the decision they couldn't skimp on that because if you rush it through testing and production and you put out millions of cartridges and every single one of them is defective, That is the biggest disaster in the world. So I'm sure they sped a few things up as much as they could in terms of that part of the process, but they were not going to sacrifice that part of it. That part of it was too important. So that meant they had four or five weeks to do the game. There are stories about how the programmer for this game was selected, and as far as I know, they are quite simply all untrue. I have talked to George Kish who was the head of the programming group at Atari during this time period. He says that the reason Howard Scott Warshaw got the game, they had nothing to do with any previous relationship with Spielberg, even though he was working on the Raiders of the Lost Ark game that was going on at this time. It had nothing to do with a personal call from anybody. George Kish said that it was just he was available. He was the type of person that would be willing to put in the hours where you would essentially have to live at the office for four weeks or five weeks to get this done. And that was really the beginning and the end of the discussion. I think Warshaw at times has said that Ray Kassar called him personally or this or that person called him personally. And that's not how it happened. But George Kish was told by Kassar that we got this game. We got to do it. And George Kish, of course, said this is absolutely nuts. And, of course, Kassar says, well... We're doing it. (laughs) Deal's made. So Kish is like, well, we'll do what we can. And so Warshaw's available. And Warshaw's got the type of uh, work mentality that he would put in the time on it. And so Warshaw gets the game. You know, Howard Scott Warshaw, we haven't really talked too much about him. Obviously, we've mentioned him and we've talked about him in the context of E.T., but we haven't really taken a moment to talk about who Howard Scott Warshaw was. He's dead then, I take it? Is. (laughs) Who Howard Scott Warshaw is. Warshaw was a math guy and a very smart math guy. He went to Tulane University, finished a double major in math and economics in three years. He received a scholarship to enter the master's program and got his master's degree in computer engineering. This is a period of time when most of the programmers active in the video game industry did not have advanced degrees in computer science or computer engineering. He was a smart cookie. He went to Hewlett-Packard. He did a lot of hardware work at Hewlett-Packard and software work. He was a really smart guy, but he was also kind of a very loose kind of guy, a, a very, I mean, not loose, that's the wrong word to use, but 
he liked fun. I mean, he was a fun-loving guy. He was not straight-laced. He was not white shirt, black tie, pocket protector type of engineer. Carefree. Exactly. He was more carefree. And so the whole thing at Hewlett-Packard, the whole kind of straight-laced, stiff-necked thing, wasn't really for him. So when he had an opportunity to come work for Atari, he went and, and worked for Atari because that was just going to be a lot more fun. One of the first projects that he ended up working on at Atari was to convert a Cinematronics arcade game called Star Castle that had been a minor hit in 1980-1981. It's a vector graphics game. There's this space station, this very Death Star-like space station. It has a shield around it. You have to shoot away, whittle away at the shield so you can get in and destroy the station. So it's kind of a shoot 'em up game. He quickly decided that a straight-up adaptation wasn't going to work. So he modified it a bit and ended up with a game called Yar's Revenge, which was a very well-received shooting game on the VCS. Some sources say it was the best-selling non-licensed title to ever be made by Atari on the VCS, and I don't have good enough sales numbers that I feel comfortable saying that that's a true statement. But it is true to say that the game was quite successful. So, you know, his first game that he did was a hit product. He ended up being drafted for the Raiders of the Lost Ark game that was being made based on the Spielberg movie. He was completely enamored with Warren Robinette's adventure, this idea that you can have larger worlds within the tiny little VCS. And so he decided that his Raiders game would be an adventure game, except bigger and better, more items, more locations. He actually implemented an inventory system. Warren Robinette had deliberately not put an inventory system into adventure, or didn't even explore the possibility, let's put it that way, because he wanted the action to stay immediate because it's a console game, and a console game kind of demands immediate action, even if it's a more explory kind of thing like adventure. Howard Scott Warshaw wanted to do adventure, but bigger and better in his mind in every way, and that included an inventory system. It was actually very clever. He made Joystick 2 the inventory system. Because remember, the Atari VCS has a joystick and a button. One joystick, one button. You couldn't even do what you do in an NES game and hit your start button to get to a separate menu screen. The the Atari just doesn't work that way. (laughs) But by using Controller 2 as an inventory navigation controller, because it's a one-player game, then he was able to have an inventory system, which was quite innovative. Raiders broke a lot of ground in terms of the size of its world, the scope of its world, and things like inventory. But it was also a very hard game. It was a very finicky game. It sometimes demanded pretty quick changes between items. And remember, changing your items quickly means that you're juggling two different joysticks at once. So it's a game that had a lot of problems. People try to point to that and say, well, look, Howard had two great games and one meh game, so clearly the guy had a lot of talent. I'm not saying he had no talent. He did have talent. Yars Revenge was a legitimately good game, but the thing is, I'm not sure why people look at Raiders that way today. I don't know if it's because Warshaw himself has managed to shape the narrative on it, or because people see the name Indiana Jones and are like, oh, Indiana Jones. Raiders was not a particular success. Again, the number that gets bandied about for it is that it sold a million copies. I don't have any good figures for that, so I'm not sure if it really did or not. But even if it did sell a million copies for the sake of argument, Raiders was Atari's other big release in Christmas 1982. 
alongside E.T. Other big releases like Space Invaders and Defender and Pac-Man had sold way more than a million copies. Even if it really did reach a million, when you consider the size of the video game market in 1982 and the fact that it was positioned as one of the two big products that Atari was peddling at that time, that's not a great sales figure, and there are a few reasons for that. Raiders of the Lost Ark came out in 1981. Christmas 1982 is very far removed from summer 1981. So it wasn't that hot a property in that sense at the time it came out. I mean, obviously, Raiders was and continues to be a brilliant movie that's had a loyal following for decades. But it's not the hot new thing in 1982. It's last year's movie. It was too hard. It was too finicky. I mean, he had great ambition. And I think that's great that he had great ambition. But it was just too hard and finicky to be a successful game on a system that was primarily played by that younger crowd. That 6 to 12-year-old crowd was the console crowd. After that, you went to the arcade. He really had one highly successful game, one kind of eh, game, and then one kind of oh no game. So I think it's fair to put it in perspective like that. But That isn't to say that we can completely blame Howard Scott Warshall either for the state of E.T., because obviously doing anything in a five-week period was going to be very fraught, very difficult. But he was enamored with these adventure games, and so he wanted to continue in that kind of vein. On the one hand, you can say, well, it's a miracle he got anything out at all in five weeks, and that's true. There's no doubt that it was a miracle that he got a coherent game out that was pretty bug-free and was a complete product done in that amount of time. I mean, the guy worked his butt off. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And we'll give credit where credit is due there. But why do you do a big adventure game when you only have five weeks to make it? It would certainly make more sense to do some sort of action-y game, some sort of fleeing thing where you're trying to go through levels fleeing from the cops or something trying to get et to escape or trying to run through a level to save elliot or something i don't know but something that's a bit more actiony than exploratory and you know spielberg recommended the exact same thing because spielberg was not intimately involved in the creation of the game but he had a meeting or two it was his property and he's genuinely interested in video games. Spielberg, when he heard the pitch, was like, well, couldn't you just make a Pac-Man game where he's collecting Reese's Pieces and being chased by the government? Yeah, very, very simple. Sort of a derivative (laughs) work, but it works, especially in a five-week period. And I can understand why they wouldn't necessarily want to do that. I mean, in all fairness to Howard, Atari had just released Pac-Man in late March 1982. So to do two Pac-Man-style games back-to-back, that would probably not have been the smartest way to approach the project either. Let's be fair here. Steven's idea was not necessarily the best way to do it, but still, on the other hand, you think to yourself, well, there are kind of the bones of a Pac-Man-style game here, right? Right. (laughs) Uh, Because The the idea of E.T. Pursued, and you even do have the Reese's Pieces that are perfect stand-ins. So... Was it the right choice? Maybe not, but you can see the allure. Even if you don't go that route, even if you don't go Steven's idea, it does feel like trying to do an adventure game was over ambitious. So again, but taking it to the other side again, 
Howard Scott Warshaw really did have a problem here, which, again, I can understand why he would want to go this route. I want to play both sides here. Video games in this time period, Pac-Man aside, were primarily about killing things, shooting things, exploding things. E.T. is the antithesis of that. A movie so not about shooting things that Steven Spielberg made the bizarre decision upon a re-release decades later to replace the few guns that even appeared in the movie with walkie-talkies. So E.T. was not a movie that really lent itself to a video game in that time period. Today, if a movie like E.T. came out, you could come up with all sorts of interesting ways that weren't just shooting things, that you could do something with that. But then again, today, we have a lot more diverse concept of how video game can be done and how to do an action-y, non-combat focused game because the industry and the ecosystem is a lot more mature. Right. And we also have better technology. Part of the reason that the shooting games are so big was simple expediency. Put three or four objects up on the screen, have one of them get shot and disappear, replace it with another object. I mean, that's just expedient in a time period when you have a system that was originally made to only show five objects on the screen at the same time. Glorified Pong. (laughs) Right. Pong and tank. Glorified Pong and tank. That's what the VCS was meant to be. So you can see why he was in a quandary, and I don't fault him for being in that quandary. There was not a simple way out of this. I still, though, think at the end of the day, I don't want to just completely play Pontius Pilate here. I still think at the end of the day, it was a mistake to go the route he did. I don't think you tried to do an adventure game in that period of time. But he did. So he created a game where E.T. had to find all the pieces of his system that he needed to phone home. Then he had certain obstacles to that path. He tried to create a primitive kind of story dynamic between the characters in the game. So there's E.T., whom you control, and you're walking around looking for stuff in town, in the woods, down pits. Then he had the FBI agent, and the FBI agent was an acquisitive character. The FBI agent was interested in what E.T. had in his possession because he's law enforcement. That's what he's about. So the FBI agent would try to catch E.T. and steal what you have, take what you've already found. Very similar in that sense to the role that the bat plays in the original adventure game, which, of course, is ultimately Howard Scott Warshaw's inspiration for doing both Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. The bat doesn't take something you already have, but it's a stealing creature. Then there's the scientist, and the scientist is interested in E.T. himself as an object of study. So the scientist pursues E.T. and then tries to take him back to town to study him. And then he gets Elliot in the game. Elliot is a helper character that you can call on in certain circumstances and he can help you out. So he was trying to create characters and he was trying to create interactions between those characters that were not just generic, which again is laudable. At the end of the day, you had a game where you're running around from screen to screen and you're on a system that can't do very interesting backgrounds. So these screens that you're running around on are not that interesting. And that is not Warshaw's fault at all. Don't fault him for that. It's impossible. (laughs) And you have this search mechanic where you're looking for stuff and you have these pursuers, but there's not much there. 
And part of that is because he just has five weeks. He doesn't have enough time to put much stuff there. But that's still not very much to work with. And then you have the entire well situation, the falling down the holes to look for pieces of the equipment. And this is really where the amount of time he had was a problem because there was not very good collision detection between E.T. and the holes. You got one little pixel over the line and boom, you were down the hole whether you meant to be or not. You could get out of the holes. I mean, you were meant to fall down the holes when it suited you to look for pieces of your communication system. So he had a way to get out of the hole when he got in, but it's time consuming. You're walking near a hole. You don't even realize you're about to fall in. You fall in the hole. You have to do the whole thing where E.T. floats up. You walk a little further and then boom, you're down in a hole again. I don't think Warshaw probably intended it to be that way. I think that if Warshaw had had more time to actually design the game, that he would have made that whole system better. I don't think that was a limitation of Warshaw as a designer. I think that was a limitation of five weeks to make a game. That was something that probably would have come out during game testing and QA, and someone would be, hey, the collision detection for these holes is too big. We need to make that smaller so that you can clip over the edges of the holes as you're moving around, and you have to really pretty much go center on on these holes to go in. Mm -hmm. Exactly. The other thing is there's not many in-game clues as to what you need to do. It's not possible to give many in-game cues in an Atari VCS game. So again, this is not a fault of Howard Scott Warshaw. There was an instruction manual with the game, but you kind of have to remember, and I'm not sure Warshaw necessarily was thinking this through, and again, it's something that he might have thought through if he had more time, but E.T. was a kid's movie. I mean, adults found it heartwarming too, but it was a kid's movie. The people that are going to be playing this game are kids. They're going to be even at the low end of that 6 to 12 or 6 to 14 year old spectrum that plays consoles. ET players are even going to be on the low end of that spectrum. More 6 to 10. Right. And you know, I don't have like market studies to back that up or anything. Part of that is just my gut feeling about it, but I think it's a reasonable gut feeling. These kids aren't going to want to read the instruction manual to figure out what they're supposed to be doing, where they're supposed to be going. Some of them might not even have good reading skills at that point. Exactly. An adventure game is a more cerebral game. And there was definitely a market for adventure games on the VCS. The range does go up into the tweens and early teens. Even some of those arcade jockeys in their later teens have consoles at home. So there's absolutely a place for that kind of game or a game that's more complex, or a game that requires you to read the instruction manual before diving in. But VCS games tend to be simple. There's one joystick, there's one button, and in most VCS games, especially ones that just involve blowing stuff up, it's pretty easy to figure out what you're supposed to do with all of those controls without going to the instruction book. E.T., you're just dropped in, and you have no idea what to do. And again, that's not Warshaw's fault. You can't put tutorials in a VCS game. It's okay to expect that the player should have to read the manual. I'm not saying that Warshaw was out of line. But I'm not sure they thought through the fact that maybe those younger players aren't going to be interested in that. People get confused about E.T. sometimes. People confuse the fact that the game is a little bit inscrutable and a little bit finicky with the game being incomplete or buggy on release. E.T. was not incomplete. It was a complete game. Would Howard Warshaw have 
added elements or refined elements if he had had more time? Absolutely, he would have. But it was a complete game, and it was not a broken game. There were not bugs. Everything worked as intended. The closest thing that it had to a bug was the collision detection with the holes. Even that wasn't a bug in the sense that it wasn't working the way the code intended it to work. It was a not thoroughly tested game system that ended up being too strict in the way the collision worked. It's a design failure. Right. So it is a complete game. It is a finished game. It is a polished game. And it is a miraculous game in that it was made in five weeks. But it was also an over-designed game and an overcomplicated game for both the age group that would be playing it and the amount of time he had to refine it. So there's a real move these days to exonerate Warshaw because he received so much flack over the years and E.T. was called the worst game of all time. There is no way E.T. was the worst game on the VCS or of all time. There are games for the VCS made by some of these smaller, piddly, dumb little third-party companies that had game-breaking bugs that made them unplayable. E.T. is playable. Whether you have fun playing it or not, it is playable. So let's not go there. It is not the worst game of all time. No one should have piled that stigma onto poor Howard Scott Warshaw. He does not deserve that. But there has been this move in the other direction of being like, it's amazing he got it done in five weeks. He's a genius. I mean, yeah, it's not perfect, but look at what he did. And while there's no doubting the work ethic, there's no doubting the programming skill, there's no doubting the drive and the ambition, all of which Mr. Warshaw has and all of which he should be lauded for, He bit off more than he could chew in the time period he had, and he made it too complicated. And quite frankly, when he had another game where he did have a full development cycle, Raiders of the Lost Ark, he made that too complicated as well. So he did kind of overthink game design. And he was a brand new game designer. He had lots of potential. If he had had a chance to continue at Atari, if Atari hadn't blown up, I have no doubt he would have learned from that and continued to refine his approach and probably overcome some of that overthinking that he was doing. We have to remember that he was an inexperienced guy being asked to create the two big holiday properties of 1982 for Atari. And we talked about this a little in our Atari episode. Part of that is because of the brain drain. They had lost so many people to Activision, so many people to Imagic. The experienced VCS programmers were all gone There was no one left that could mentor the next generation. So guys like Howard Scott Warshaw and Todd Fry were very accomplished programmers, very smart technical people that just didn't have the mentors within the company in game design who could tell them, this is the best way to do this. This is the best way to do that. I like the idea you have here, but have you considered maybe doing it slightly like this instead? They didn't have the mentors and they were new. I don't want to pile on and say he was terrible because Warshaw was not terrible, but what he was was inexperienced and overambitious. It really is. It's very interesting to think that you do have that sort of dichotomy there of people going, hey, this guy is the worst thing ever, terrible guy. How could he program such horrible things? And then the other side of he's amazing, the fact that he got all this stuff out there, fantastic, hail unto thee. Like so many things in life, it's somewhere in the middle. The guy's really skilled and accomplished, right? but he's inexperienced. He doesn't have the support structure he needs to properly make a game. 
and he's ambitious and he has lofty goals and tries to apply that to something that he probably shouldn't have as far as a short time frame of getting a game out there. Exactly. Honestly, because he doesn't have a sounding board internal to work with. So it makes perfect sense. So I think it really is somewhere in the center there of it's fantastic that he got the game out there, but he made some rookie mistakes because, frankly, he's a rookie. Right, exactly. So now we need to talk about the other side of this. We need to talk about the release of the game, the response to the game, and the effect it had on Atari. Again, we've talked about some of this before, but we want to walk through it in some amount of detail. One thing you have to understand about Warner Communications is that Warner Communications was a rocket. For 30 or 31 quarters in a row, years worth of quarters, they had experienced double-digit growth in comparison to the previous quarter. Huge year-on-year growth. Huge quarter-to-quarter comparison growth. Atari, specifically, was doubling its sales every year, all the way up to $2 billion. It was a rocket. For seven years. Yeah, for years and years and years. It was experiencing humongous year-over-year growth, quarter-over-quarter growth. And a lot of Steve Ross's wealth and a lot of the wealth of the high-level executives was paper wealth that was tied to the stock of the company. And it was very important to them that the stock continue to run. And the stock continues to run by providing consistent, huge growth, year over year, quarter over quarter. This is something we have to remember, because I don't think people sometimes understand the significance of Warner's December announcement on their earnings. The linchpin of the entire crash of the home market. We've talked about how all year long, Warner was saying that they would have records again, records again, records again. We are still growing like a rocket. We are still taking off. We are still reaching the stratosphere. For the first three quarters of the year, this was true. The first three quarters of the year were huge at Atari. Pac-Man was huge. A lot of people complain about the game today, about how it was flickery, about how it had ugly colors, how it didn't really capture the arcade game well, but it was huge. Over 7 million copies. The first million or two million copies that hit retail just were gone in an instant. It slowed down a little bit in the summer just because it had been out a few months. It picked up steam a little bit again in the fall as we got towards Christmas. It was huge. It fueled huge growth at the company. There were other games that were going well. Defender was going well still. Lots of big products, even Space Invaders, (laughs) was still selling uh, (laughs) here and there at at an okay level. They had a record first quarter. They had a record second quarter. They cheated to get a record third quarter. And when I say they cheated, they didn't do anything illegal. But because of the number of weeks in a year and how that divides into four, you have some weeks in there that you have to decide which quarter it's a part of. You're allowed to go either way. They were slowing a little in the third quarter, but they were able to tack an extra week onto the third quarter legally. But without that extra week, they wouldn't have delivered the same huge records. They kind of had to fudge it (laughs) to get another record. But they still thought they were going to have a record fourth quarter. 
there have been a couple of people that have commented on this, both to me and both to other people. Michael Moon and Perry Odak, the guys on the ground, president of the Consumer Products Group and president of the Consumer Division. Just as a reminder, Consumer Products Group was both domestic and international, and Consumer Electronics was the domestic portion of Consumer Products Group. Both Michael Moon and Perry Odak knew that they were going to come in lower. They knew that the growth wasn't being sustained, but Steve Ross was demanding growth and Ray Kassar was feeding him numbers to give him what he wanted to hear. And he wasn't doing it just as a form of flattery. They really thought that Odak and Moon and the people in the consumer division were lowballing, that they were wrong. I'm sure some of it had to do with some of the screwed up accounting system, which we talked about in our updates episode, where they weren't perfectly matching orders with revenue coming in, orders with receivables was creating some of this problem. So people in Atari knew that something was up, but the people higher up didn't want to hear it. And the people higher up were believing the rosier projections in part because they kind of needed to psychologically believe the rosier projections. To you and I, if a company announces on December 8th, 1982, that we're going to grow 10 to 15% this year as a company, that sounds nice, right? That's good. <laughs> company's growing. That means you're going up. You're going up. Fantastic. Let's go. Yeah, company's growing. Everyone likes a company that's growing. That sounds pretty good. But you have to remember two things here. Atari and Warner had said that the company was going to grow 50%. And they were still saying this in late November. They restated down a little bit in November, but only a little bit. They were still saying this in November. And they already know that that's not going to happen. No way, no how. Well, they should have known. Let's put it that way. So first of all, that's a huge shock because when you miss your guidance by that much, it doesn't matter if your company grew. If you blow your guidance by that much, then nobody trusts you anymore because clearly you aren't competent to be tracking the figures if you blow your guidance by that much. That's the first part of the problem right there. The second part of the problem is that 10 to 15% growth was less growth than the company had experienced in the fourth quarter of 1981. And remember what made Warner Communications a stock that everybody wanted to buy, a stock that was so highly rated, is that every quarter, every comparable quarter, so first quarter to first quarter, second quarter to second quarter of consecutive years, every quarter the company grew at a greater rate, not just that they grew again, they grew at a greater rate than they did same quarter the year before. 31 consecutive quarters, they increased their growth over the prior comparable quarter. A ridiculously long streak of quarters. Yeah, that's roughly seven and a half years. Right. This was the first quarter in 31 quarters that they did not grow compared to the comparable quarter the year before. Plus, they blew their guidance by a lot. So this was a disaster. It crashed the Warner stock. I mean, not all at once, but it began the process of crashing the Warner stock, which led to a hostile takeover attempt by Rupert Murdoch. Yes, that Rupert Murdoch, which led to all sorts of panic, which is a big part of the reason why the company finally had to sell Atari. So that was a huge problem. And E.T. 
was a lot of the reason that they didn't get that growth that they needed, because it was the big holiday game of 1982. Because of the guaranteed royalty that they gave Steven Spielberg, they had to sell about four to five million cartridges just to make the whole thing worthwhile. Just to experience a reasonable return on investment. They manufactured four to five million copies. They had no choice. Again, they had no choice because they were tied into that guarantee. So you had a game that was rushed through production that had to be produced in great quantities or else, and that wasn't suited for the audience, which was going to be younger kids. They pinned their hopes and dreams on one game and didn't provide it the proper support and guidance it needed and then act all surprised when it didn't bear fruit. Right. And we don't really know the final sales. There are numbers that get thrown around. Rekasar basically claimed that only about 500,000 were sold. Other sources give 1.5 million. It sold more than that. But the word is that a lot of them got returned. Now, I don't know if that was returned by retailers or returned by consumers. Because with Atari people talking about that, it could be either one. Basically, a lot of them ended up getting returned. My guess is probably to the stores, not to Atari, because it was a problem game. And one of the things that Skip Paul, again, not to me, I haven't talked to him, but one of the things that Skip Paul brought up that is very interesting to think about and why it is kind of important on the crash, I think he's right about this to a degree. Before E.T., you just bought games. I'm not saying you bought everything because people didn't buy every game, but like you didn't worry so much about the quality with a Pac-Man or with a Defender or with the Space Invaders because you just really wanted the game. And yeah, the games didn't always live up to what was going on in the arcade, but they were solidly made enough. They were close enough that people were happy with them. And, you know, Activision comes along and a Magic comes along and they make really good games, even though they're not based on licenses. After you've gotten a couple of Activision games, you're like, yeah, yeah, this is a company that really knows what they're doing. They make great games, so you don't even think about it. It's like, I'll take that one, I'll take that one. You know, in Skip Paul's opinion, E.T. was the first game that really made that all screech to a halt, and people say, like, wait a minute, I bought this game, and it was terrible, and it was so terrible that I returned it. And that just wasn't a thing you had seen. Now, again, there are companies that made worse games. There were all these fly-by-night third-party developers that were absolute, utter crud and a disgrace to everything that were worse than E.T., but you kind of expect a company you've never heard of before to release a game that is kind of substandard, right? Yeah, you're, you're certainly rolling the dice on that one. But you expect the major publishers to put out a game that is at least somewhat fun and enjoyable. You especially expect that out of Atari, who has a long legacy of arcade games and should know better. And they're the ones who made this console. So they theoretically should know how to program it. Right. It's not a perfect comparison, but you can think of it in, in terms of Nintendo. Not that everything Nintendo has ever done has ever been brilliant. At this point, you have some idea of what you're getting when you get a Nintendo game. You do. It stands for a certain level of quality. Not that everything hits that level of quality, but you have an idea when you get a Mario or a Zelda game or something of what you're going to get. And I think Atari probably enjoyed a similar level of trust. 
not every game that Atari made in this overheated period. I'm just talking about the stuff they released kind of from 80 to 82. I'm not talking about the 77 to 79 really early VCS games. Not everything they released in that time period was perfect. Not everything they released in that time period was even a great representation of the arcade game it was trying to emulate. But you still had a certain level of trust in what they were doing. And Skip Paul feels like Atari violated that trust with the E.T. game. Again, there are a variety of factors there. We can't just say they released the worst game ever. But he thinks that that played a big role in kind of getting people to step back a little bit. There was a real loss of faith in this time period. And Atari was not alone in this because a lot of that loss of faith was just the market was oversaturated. We talked about this in the crash episode. It was a bad time to lose faith in the market leader. It was a bad time to lose faith in Atari. And it was a bad time for the investment community to lose faith in Warner Communications. Even though we would have still had the crash without ET, we would have still had the crash even if Warner hadn't announced that the year-over-year growth was going to be smaller. Let's be clear on that. The underlying problem was oversaturation. The market was just overheated. There was like 200% of market demand in the pipeline, which blew the whole thing up. I still think that that loss of faith in Atari and Warner Communications played a humongous role in the lack of ability to perform damage control once this happened. Atari couldn't pull back and retrench and try to ride out the lean years and try to wait for the market to clear out and then come back bigger and stronger. Because Warner couldn't afford to wait, because their stock price was going into the toilet and they were facing hostile takeovers. And Atari was suffering from too much overhead and all of these other problems and didn't have any other really hit games ready to go and were really dragged down by this failed license. And there's a lot going on there. It just feels to me like even though E.T. is not responsible for the crash, it's understandable why it looms large because there was that breach of trust and there was that inability for Atari to respond to the situation after it happened because they just had too much wrapped up in Raiders and E.T. and they didn't have a plan B right away that could get them back on track. By the time they could get a plan B together to try to stay in the fight, it was too late for Warner to keep supporting them. You can see why E.T. kind of becomes a symbol in that sense. But it's really not fair. I mean, it's a game that was probably always doomed to fail, which is why it's not fair to Howard Scott Warshaw, because there are a few things we have to keep in mind. One of them is that, like I said, violence was the rule of the day. And when they did their focus testing, they saw that the kids really didn't like the game. And uh, the collective opinion kind of was kids like to blow stuff up or boys, you know, the people primarily playing video games like to blow stuff up, and this is not a game where you get to blow anything up. So it's questionable whether there could have ever been an E.T. game that would have been successful in this time period. Contrast that with Raiders of the Lost Ark, because you have Indiana Jones shooting his gun or whatever else. You can have some of those violence episodes occur in the game, and that makes the game more attractive to that demographic. Right, but even then, Warshaw overcomplicated it and put in a lot of adventure elements. It wasn't a straight action game which I think was probably a problem. And then you have another factor that really doesn't get reported on very much, but I've gone through the toy trades of the time. 
E.T. came out in the summer, and everyone kind of expected that E.T. merchandise was going to be huge during the holiday season. And it wasn't. There was a failure of E.T. merchandise during that holiday across the spectrum. Toys, collectibles, lunchboxes, sheets, whatever. There was just a lack of interest. Just because people really liked the movie and resonated with the movie, I'm not sure it was really a good fit for branding. E.T. is not the most lovable-looking creature out there. He's not Mickey Mouse. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I know. It's not something that you necessarily want to have a doll of or something you want to have as a sheet or on your lunchbox because outside of the right context... That can actually be kind of scary and jarring. Exactly. You see, that sort of like looking at you in the darkness of your room, that's going to scare a kid. Can't sleep, clown will eat me. Exactly. You know, there's not a large cast of characters. I mean, there's E.T. and then there's just a bunch of humans. Something like Star Wars that had been so successful in the licensing realm. You had Luke and Leia and Han and the droids and the stormtroopers and Darth Vader. You had this huge, expansive cast. E.T., it's just E.T. You're not going to make an Elliot action figure. I mean, they might have, but I mean, what are you going to do with an Elliot action figure? Put him on a bike and watch him go over the moon. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) I guess. But, you know, everybody missed the market. E.T. merchandise in general, according to the toy trades, kind of disappointed in holiday 1982. And if that's the case, that could have actually played heavily into why people did not buy the cartridges. People might have just bought the cartridges on impulse because, oh, everything E.T. is hot. So I need to get stuff for little Johnny. Let's grab the lunchbox. Oh, look, here's the game. Let's buy this, buy that, the sheets. Okay, it's all good. Right. And if everything isn't hot, then I'm not buying the sheets. I'm not buying the lunchbox. I don't feel that strong impulse drive to just buy the cartridge and buy everything else because it's not there. Consequentially, Warner and Atari go, well, we can't sell all these cartridges because apparently it's not the thing of the holiday season. Right. And, you know, you have to remember the big games at the time. Pac-Man was a whole nother level. Pac-Man did 7 million. But games like Defender and Pitfall kind of the next tier of very successful games after Pac-Man, which was in a world all of its own, they were doing like three, three and a half million in sales. Most of the hit games were doing kind of in the million range. Then you had this second tier of really hot properties that were doing two and a half, three, three and a half million. And then you had Pac-Man, which was in a world all its own. E.T. had to be produced in the four to five million range because of that upfront guaranteed royalty. But only the very best games on the system, the most well-designed games tied to the hottest properties, were actually even selling in the three to four million range. So you usually have a very good storm of hot product, well-designed game, really moves product. Here we have something where the merchandising for the product, the licensing is cold and not good. And then we rush to five week game. So you have the perfect storm of that's just not going to sell. Exactly. If they could have just produced a million copies or two million copies of the game, 
It would have been fine. They might have been okay. And they did extensive focus testing, and their focus testing showed them that they were more realistically going to sell in the one to two million range. They knew this from their market studies, but they literally couldn't stop there. And really, a lot of that blame stems from upper management and going to Spielberg and saying, I'm giving you $25 million up front. Right. And the whole reason he did that was not because of video games, because he didn't care about video games. He just wanted Steven to make a movie for him. Right. And if that's <laughs> the case, I'm doing this thing and I'm pinning my hopes on this part of my company that I don't really understand, then I'm surprised that it fails because I'm pinning my hopes right. and dreams on a company that I don't understand how it works. And then I pretty much set it up to fail. And then I almost take my own company with it. And then right. I don't set aside the money to go, okay, well, I should have a war chest or something to go like, okay, if that doesn't succeed, then I can still cover all the money I need to give Steven in the event that this thing that I don't right. understand. I would want to place most of the blame for that where it belongs. Right, on Steve Ross. But, you know, from Steve Ross's perspective, $23 million was cheap to get Spielberg to make movies for him. That's just a negotiating tactic. Because he was being fed these incredible growth numbers from Atari, he didn't think that would be a problem. He may not have even cared if E.T. itself turned a profit at Atari because he probably figured it wouldn't matter. But everybody was missing the exact perfect storm that was happening at the same time in the distribution channels, which caused the crash. E.T. absent the crash, the oversaturation, makes for maybe not the best holiday in Atari's history, but it doesn't make for a disaster. But E.T., with all of the oversaturation thing, makes a huge disaster. E.T. is a big part of that disaster for Atari, and Atari's collapse is the huge part of that disaster for everybody else. We shouldn't just sweep E.T. under the rug and say, of course it didn't have anything to do with the crash, because it did have something to do with the crash. Atari needed a hit to sustain their growth. Atari didn't get the hit they needed to sustain their growth. Their growth slowed, the stock tanked, and the company had to be broken up. We had a perfect storm. So in that sense, E.T. was part of the crash, even though too many companies releasing too many games into the channel and overzealous distributors and retailers ordering too much product because they're so used to not getting what they want, and so they order twice what they need in order to get half of it, which is what they want. All of that is part of it, too. It's the two together. And the crash still happens without E.T. because the oversaturation was going to kill the market on its own. And if it wasn't E.T., it would have been some other game that was the final straw that broke the camel's back. Exactly. But E.T. looms large in everyone's minds because the fall of Atari was the symbol of the end of that phase of the video game industry. And E.T., because it failed to deliver the unrealistic expectations that the company placed on the game became the symbol for the failure of Atari. So when you have those two syllogisms, it's like Atari's failure symbol of crash, E.T.'s failure symbol of Atari, then people automatically start connecting in their minds E.T. symbol of crash. And that makes sense. And that really is the seed for what I really want to get into next is the legend, the mythology, the public zeitgeist that has even permeated the video game industry that is the legend of E.T. crashing the market 
and why it's so prevalent in everyone's mind. And even people who have lived and experienced this believe the own lies. Right. And that is the exact reason why. Because it was the symbol of Atari's futility, and Atari's fall was the symbol of the wider crash. So people like streamlined, simple, easy to latch onto stories. And so they see that straight line and they just grab onto that. And of course, the underlying economics were far more complicated than that. It was such a bad game and it was such a returned game. I mean, it's not just that it didn't sell. It's that it was returned in large quantities. I wish we had better concrete figures on all of this. A lot of what we have is just people speaking years after the fact. But whatever the exact numbers are, whether it sold 500,000 or a million or a million and a half, whatever it sold, everybody agrees. People that would be in the know, like Ray Kassar and Skip Paul, you know, upper level of Atari management, agree that it's a game that wasn't just sitting on store shelves, but was actually purchased and returned. That's just such a big flop that it becomes a symbol, and most people don't do the in-depth research. And that's not a knock on people. I mean, people don't have time to do the in-depth research. That's why very few people do what I did and write a book on this stuff, because that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of research. Nobody put in the effort. It's only when you dig beneath the surface and start looking at the newspaper reports, looking at the annual reports, looking at the financials, talking to the people creating the bigger picture that you can get something more nuanced. But most people aren't going to do that. Most people are just going to see market crash, market crash, Atari go boom, Atari go boom, ET go boom, ET make everything go boom. Put it in a landfill. We're done with it. Right. The landfill stories got out. I don't know exactly how that urban legend spread, but there were legitimate newspaper reports that there had been burial of material down in Alamogordo in New Mexico. Somehow we got from there to it all being E.T. I think it was just kind of a telephone game kind of thing where, you know, oh, did you hear about the burial? There was some E.T. stuff in there. Oh, did you hear about when they buried all those E.T.s? And then people were like, no, they couldn't have really buried stuff. I mean, that's ridiculous. Who buries stuff? That's got to be an urban legend. But E.T., it was so bad. And, you know, all of this kind of stuff swirls out there. Another perfect storm where we have this legend that's taking on a life of its own, especially at the time. Well, what are you going to do with the excess 3 million copies you didn't sell? Most of them were in retail channels. Most of them just got discounted down. You know, 20 bucks, 15 bucks, 10 bucks, 5 bucks, 1 buck. Al Nilsson, who had been working for Pennies as a buyer at the time and then went on to Mattel and then went on later on to be a key part of the Sega marketing team, he kept a framed copy of E.T. that was selling for like 99 cents that has the 99 cent sticker on it because... Yeah, kind of as a reminder of what happened. Most of them ended up in the marketplace. What happened with the burial is Atari had a facility in El Paso, a factory in El Paso. They were shifting manufacturing overseas. They had already started shifting a lot of manufacturing overseas even before the market fell apart. But then they really wanted to ship stuff overseas after things did fall apart and their overhead was too high and they needed to save money. So the El Paso facility, they had old defective stock, stuff that had failed QA and that had just piled up somewhere. They also presumably had some completed games that had come off the assembly line there and just never got from the factory out into the world. And so they took all of this stuff and they landfilled it because they were closing the facility and they had to get rid of everything. So there were ETs in there. Absolutely, there were ETs in there along with other cartridges, along with hardware, 
it was just a grab bag of stuff. And it was basically the stuff that was either defective or had come off the assembly line and just had not had an opportunity to make it to retail. Some of the last things to come off the assembly line, in effect. Right. That, that's my guess. Uh, that would be my guess. Most of the ETs ended up in the discount bins. It's really a relatively small percentage of them that ended up buried in New Mexico. Because remember, Ray Kassar, uh, as I learned from Periodic, Ray Kassar didn't want to destroy inventory. He resisted destroying inventory. I guess he thought it would work itself out. I don't know. But so they weren't junking inventory as general practice. They were basically just leaving it out there at retail to die. There was a burial. There were contemporary news reports about the burial. And again, someone or some people connected the idea of E.T. doing poorly and stuff being buried and E.T. being part of the burial and connected that to create this myth that every one of the millions of unsold E.T. cartridges were buried in the New Mexico desert. Now, when did that happen? What year, roughly? The burial, 1983. Okay, so that's right around when the crash happened, right after E.T. came out, 82, 83. So right, right. that would make logical sense, especially with that whole telephone thing and communication thing. That would make a fantastic headline. That's going to sell newspapers, magazines at the time. Right. So, well, I mean, the, the newspapers didn't report on it. The newspapers reported on the actual burial. Mm-hmm. And then people crafted elaborate theories around that, and it got distorted over time. Right here, just our communication just sort of exemplifies how that right. legend just sort of take seed in our minds and just sort of blossoms into its own thing. It's really yeah. fascinating. Right. And, you know, it's kind of funny that people ever believed those rumors, because if the vast majority of E.T. cartridges had been buried, then E.T., the Atari 2600 cartridge, would have become an incredible rarity on the collector's market that would have sold for Boku bucks because there wouldn't be that many of them. They're out there. They just <laughs> they just didn't get bought. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's E.T., a lot more depth than we went on it before. I think you can kind of see the goods and the bads and its creation, the ways that Atari created problems, the ways that parts of the problems were out of their control, and quite frankly, the ways that E.T. was always destined to fail, always destined not to be a big hit, no matter what happened. It's just that, unfortunately, because of the circumstances surrounding its acquisition, Atari needed it to be a big hit. That's as much as anything what created the problem. And I'll certainly throw links into the show notes that go back to our four-parter on Atari if you want to go into more depth onto the birth and end of Atari, everything, and how this all sort of rose and fell, and also the great video game crash that we did just sort of give some more context and stuff we talked about tangentially and refresh your memory or if you're new listen to it for the first time absolutely we hope you all have a fantastic holiday season we will see you next time on the first of january in the new year 2020 and we will be discussing well i think while we're uh, starting a new decade here is an appropriate time to go back to kind of the very beginning of everything from an industry perspective and uh, look at the company that was responsible for kickstarting this whole thing, that company being Magnavox. Now, we've done an episode on the Magnavox Odyssey before, on how that system was marketed and how that came together. But we haven't talked about Magnavox's entire stay in video games, because Magnavox 
rather its new parent company, Philips, through its new subsidiary, North American Philips, stayed in the video game industry from the very beginning, literally the very first home console released in 1972, all the way through the crash. It wasn't just that original Odyssey system. So we'll probably gloss over a lot of the original Odyssey stuff pretty quickly, but then we'll use that as a springboard to kind of talk about the company's entire stay in the video game industry right up until it got out during the crash. They're not covering what we did before with the lawsuit and the system, but a holistic of it, too. Right. You know, they did other systems after that original Odyssey, and we'll kind of chart that path a little bit. I wish I had more insider information on that. I wish there had been more people interviewed, unfortunately. The Odyssey execs didn't tend to be interviewed, and uh, most of the high-level executives have passed on now. So, you know, we can't do something as in-depth as what we've done on Atari, but we can still tell their story and tell their story in kind of a complete way in which it's not normally told. Magnavox, Phillips, and so on. Next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The People and Companies That Shape the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 